We took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us, and therefore we have no cause for complaint. But bow to the will of Providence, determined still to do our best to the last. Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes, and our dead bodies, must tell that tale. The words are those of Robert Falcon Scott, leader of the second expedition ever to reach the South Pole, and written on March 29, 1912, as he lay dying just 11 miles short of his store of food and fuel on the Ross Ice Shelf in Antarctica. I am Dana Levin. Welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast, a forum where we explore the history, current operations, and research-based future of exploration medicine. Each month, We'll draw lessons from past explorers, sit down with those currently supporting expeditioners, and talk with the top researchers pushing back the boundaries of what is possible for human physiology. Along the way, we'll cover the physiology of putting a human body into environments it is wholly unprepared for, and discuss the guidelines and research behind how we keep our explorers healthy. Together, we'll travel to the farthest extremes of human experience, and learn what it will take to go beyond them. I wanted to start the podcast off with an episode on polar medicine. The poles are some of the most extreme environments on Earth, and there's a lot of work currently going on at both ends of our planet to study everything from climate change to the origins of the universe. There are also a lot of lessons we can learn from the experiences of past explorers. Now, I am not a historian, but when you're trying to do something no one's ever done before, it's worthwhile to look at the past, because a lot of mistakes have already been made, and understanding them can help keep future explorers safe. So since there are two poles, we split this segment into two parts, but over the next few episodes, we're going to get a sense of the history and then transition into current operations from the medical teams who work there, and even get into a bit about research that's actively going on right now. So let's start with a sense of what the poles are. As most of you probably know, the Earth is a giant sphere orbiting around the Sun. But it's also tilted slightly on its axis, and that means that as we orbit, some areas of the planet get more sunlight in 24 hours, while others get less. This sunlight variation throughout the year gives us seasons, but it also means that at the extreme north and south ends of the planet, there are places that on some days of the year get no sunlight at all, and on others get a full 24 hours worth. The geographic circle where this happens, for at least one day of the year, is how we define the Arctic and Antarctic regions. On Earth, this happens just above 66 degrees north and 66 degrees south. So what are these areas like? The curve of the Earth means that they get less direct sunlight than, say, at the equator. So for us, that means they're cold. I mean really cold. At their warmest, it averages less than 10 degrees Celsius or 50 degrees Fahrenheit, right near the edge, but temperatures have been recorded in the minus 90 degrees Celsius. That's negative 130 Fahrenheit. Uh, to put that in perspective, that's cold enough to freeze gasoline solid. So, while everywhere above the Arctic and Antarctic circles get at least one full 24-hour day and one full 24-hour night, the closer to the pole you are, the longer this period gets. So that right near the poles, you have about three months of continuous darkness in winter, and three months of continuous sunlight in summer. You can imagine what that does to your sleep schedules. With these similarities accepted, each pole is quite different. 
The Arctic has been described as a frozen sea surrounded by land, while the Antarctic is a frozen continent surrounded by sea. The Arctic is home to about 8% of Earth's total landmass and 1% of the Earth's total human population. Because of the easy access to water and the relatively warm land at its edge, there is an abundance of life in the Arctic, ranging from small microbes all the way up through mid-sized and even relatively large mammals like wolves. The Arctic land is claimed by eight different countries, and its population is about 90% descendants of European immigrants who arrived in the 11 to 1600s, and about 10% North Asian immigrant descendants who migrated there about 4,500 years ago while Egyptians were building the pyramids at Giza and Europeans were constructing Stonehenge. So for this reason, Arctic medical care covers everything from urban tertiary medical care centers to public health risks for displaced indigenous populations to field care for expeditions and tourist groups. Antarctica, on the other hand, is largely devoid of permanent land-based plant or animal life. While the area around the North Pole is a frozen ocean, so by definition it sits at sea level, the South Polar Plateau lies nearly 3,000 meters above sea level. However, the atmosphere at both poles behaves about 1,000 to 1,300 meters higher because the momentum of Earth's rotation pulls the atmosphere out and down towards the equator, a bit like swinging a ball on a string. There are also no indigenous peoples to Antarctica, and exploration of the continent begins in far more recent history than that of the North. But we'll get into more details about that in the next episode. For now, we're going to focus on the Arctic, and I just wanted to make one more point about the Arctic population. Since it's a mix of European and indigenous populations, the struggles of caring for these far northern populations are complex and very much worth discussing. It's a fascinating public health challenge about how to care for displaced indigenous populations or indigenous traditional populations that are suddenly exposed to European-style diets, but it's way beyond the focus of this podcast, so I'll encourage you to look into it on your own, but for now, we're going to focus on only the expeditions. Since we're focused primarily on expeditions, it makes sense to start with the first one. So while Arctic history begins about 4,500 years ago, let's fast forward to 325 BC. All right, imagine yourself in ancient Greece. Aristotle is documenting observations of motion around the natural world, and his student, Alexander the Great, is busy building the largest empire the world has yet seen. In fact, he just took over parts of modern India. While this is happening, an intrepid Greek sailor named Pythias sets sail in search of a new source of the valuable metal tin. The first-hand accounts of his journey have been lost to history, but according to quotes found in later Greek and Roman works, Pythias sailed north to the then-unknown British Isles, where, quote, "...the barbarians showed us the place where the sun goes to rest, for it was the case that in these parts the nights were very short, and in some places two and others three hours long, so that the sun rose again a short time after it had set." End quote. This description of a 21 to 22 hour day corresponds to a latitude close to around 65 north, just at the edge of the Arctic Circle. But Pythias kept going until he encountered pack ice and then eventually found it, quote, impassable by foot or ship, end quote. Pythias was not prepared to handle this obstacle and decided to turn back, which we'll see is not something every expeditioner figures out. Pythias never did quite find his source of tin that was reaching Greece through northern Europe, but he did set the stage and pique the curiosity of later explorers, although Arctic exploration didn't really pick up until much, much later. So we're going to skip ahead again and cover one of the more modern expeditions, because this is where it starts to become relevant for our purposes as practitioners of modern exploration medicine. 
And one of the first Arctic expeditions of this era was that of Sir William Edward Parry. And he was intending to cross what was called the Northwest Passage in 1819. Now, the Northwest Passage was a theory that you could cross over the northern end of North America instead of having to travel all the way around South America to get to the Asian coastline on the other side. And his example is an excellent one of preparation and planning. Just like Pythias discovered nearly 2,000 years earlier, the northern seas are covered with ice. And this ice is not just the floating bergs that we know of from stories like the Titanic. It's immense and rigid sheets of rapidly freezing ocean surface. These sheets cover the entire northern sea, and if you stand on this ice, it feels just as solid as any land would, and stretches off well over the horizon in every direction. These sheets are huge, and they are constantly melting and refreezing, which means they're capable of locking a ship within the ice sheet itself and trapping it for really long periods of time. We're talking months or years. Beyond that, these sheets are pushing up against each other. They create these powerful shifting fault lines that can crush these trapped ships about as easily as you can crush a grape between your teeth. Now, Parry anticipated this, and he designed two ships, the Hecla and the Gripper, specifically to handle this pressure. Their hulls were reinforced with three-inch thick oak, coated with iron plates, and supported inside with internal crossbeams to resist the compression force of this ice. So with the pressure handled, Parry's next challenge was food. Since the Arctic doesn't really have abundant plant life, and when you're on an ice sheet, it's hard to fish, he didn't want to trust his survival solely to his hunting skill. Instead, he brought preserved foods with him, which was standard practice at the time. The challenge with this is that at the time, this is early 19th century, the food on ships was pretty mediocre, and that's being generous. So imagine a kind of like gas station diet with really hard dried biscuits, beef jerky, occasionally some oatmeal and cheese, and you'll get pretty close to what sailors in this time ate. And at this time, long-term food preservation mostly meant covering the food with salt or drying it excessively to the point that it really had no moisture in it whatsoever. This meant that certain nutrients in the food would also disappear with the water, and I'm going to read a quote from a French sailor named Jacques Cartier about how this diet affected expeditioners. Here we go. The unknown sickness began to spread itself amongst us, insomuch as some did lose all their strength and could not stand on their feet. Then did their legs swell, their sinews shrink as black as any coal. Others had their skins spotted with spots of blood of a purple color, and then did it ascend up to their ankles, knees, thighs, shoulders, arms, and neck. Their mouth became stinking, their gums so rotten that all the flesh did fall off, even to the roots of the teeth, which also almost fell out. With such infection did the sickness spread itself amongst our three ships, and about the middle of February, of a hundred and ten persons that we were, there were barely ten whole. As some of you may have figured out, this unknown sickness is a malnutrition syndrome called scurvy. It's basically a lack of vitamin C. And scurvy was a big deal back then. It's estimated that scurvy killed more British sailors in the 18th century than all naval battles fought in that entire century combined. Now, scurvy would make a great episode in itself. It, it spawned the first randomized controlled trial. It was a major public health initiative. It's an early example of science informing medical treatment and policy. And it was also one of the very first examples of medical interventions 
increasing the success rate of expeditions traveling at far distances. Now, Parry benefited from all of this work, and he fed his crew fresh vegetables from a small supply that he kept in his cabin. He actually took seeds with him from the mustard plants and cress plants, planted them, grew them, and added them to his crew's diet. He also pioneered a new technology for preserving food without drying it, called canning. Now, the can opener would not be invented for another 30 years, but his crew ate pretty well, nonetheless. Now, as expected, Parry's ships were frozen into the sea for about 10 months, and that included three of complete darkness. The crew experienced temperatures as low as negative 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 48 degrees Celsius, but they were well prepared and provisioned for this experience. The biggest challenge they faced turned out to be boredom, since the long stretches of cold and dark largely confined the crew to the ship. But Parry countered this by setting up regular exercise regimens and organizing plays. They even produced a newspaper to keep the men busy. The expedition had set out in search of this fabled northern trade route to Asia, the Northwest Passage, and they did not succeed in crossing it because it's filled with ice and they had to turn back. But they did come back to England in 1820 with only one less man than they set out with. And that's pretty incredible since other expeditions of this time would routinely lose half or more of their crew by the time they returned. Unfortunately, later expeditions did not follow Parry's example. So, in 1845, Sir John Franklin set sail across to cross the Northwest Passage just like Parry wanted to. He set out with 129 men and two ships. Like Parry, the two ships did become stuck in the ice, and this is where the stories diverge. Franklin's crew wintered on Beachy Island, where three men died of infections. Then, in the spring, they returned to the ships, made it to King William Island before becoming locked in sea ice again. After a year of sheltering in their ships in the sea ice, Franklin decided they would not succeed in crossing the Northwest Passage, and they had decided to abandon the vessels. The crew walked south across the sea ice towards the island in search of an alternate route home, and this was not part of the original plan. They had only rudimentary maps of the landscape, and their equipment, food, and clothing were not meant for trekking over frozen wastelands, but rather for sheltering in ships for an extended period of time. The expedition ran out of food, began to starve, and a few of the men developed active TB, which is likely related to their weakened state. These men later died of pneumonia. The rest survived long enough to develop scurvy, hypothermia, frostbite, and many other infections, all made worse by starvation, and as their crewmates died one by one, the survivors butchered them, ate them, and slowly walked across the island towards the mainland, leaving a trail of bodies in their wake like breadcrumbs for later expeditions to find. So, I, I mention this tale for a couple of reasons. First, it illustrates why pre-screening expeditioners is important. In the 1840s, there was no way to detect TB, but if there had been, several deaths from TV would not have occurred. It's a lesson that we can learn from Franklin's expedition since we have screening procedures today. And the larger lesson is that minor underlying conditions can easily get out of hand when you're in an environment that isn't familiar and plans aren't going smoothly. The other reason to discuss this Franklin expedition is that he changed his strategy midway through. He went from a ship-based wait-and-see approach to trekking across the sea ice in search of a faster route. He didn't plan for an extended stay on the ice, he had too little food, and he did not bring trekking and land survival equipment, including basics like having a map of the area. He and his crew were not prepared for the cold, barren, shelterless landscape of the Arctic. So this expedition is a good example of what we call cascading failures. You leave the ship with improper equipment and poor maps, unable to find shelter or settlements, 
start suffering hypothermia, run low on food, reactivate latent diseases, weaken further, lose the entire mission and crew. Cascading failures are common in expeditions, but they are easily preventable if you interrupt the chain. The loss of Franklin's expedition spawned a wave of searches that started in 1848 and continued even up through 2016 with an expedition that ultimately located the Terror, one of Franklin's ships, as it was resting on the bottom of the appropriately named Terror Bay of King Williams Island. By the mid-1800s, attempts to traverse the Northwest Passage gave way to a new goal, and that was to reach the North Pole. At the time, many explorers believed that the North Polar Sea was not frozen and that if one could find the right route, then the ice would not be a problem. This is where people stopped listening to past lessons. Charles Francis Hall was one of these, and he fielded an expedition called the Polaris Expedition in 1871. The plan was to reach the North Pole by ship, but conduct several sledging excursions along the way to acquire fresh food and explore the surrounding area. Hall followed the same procedure used by many merchant ships' captains and hired his officers and crew without much thought or screening. Since the intent was to travel into unknown territory for an extended period of time, rather than on the well-traveled merchant pathways, he recruited a team of German scientists to explore the area and had them led by the ship's surgeon, Emil Bessels. Soon after leaving port, it became pretty clear that Bessels, resentful of the science team taking a subservient role, was spreading dissent among his scientists. Even some of the officers were not satisfied with Hall's command. Assistant navigator George Tyson wrote about this, and by the time they reached Disco Island in Greenland, he said, quote, Expressions are freely made that Hall shall not get any credit from this expedition. Already some have made up their minds how far they will go and when they will get home again. End quote. Tempers continued to simmer, leading to several fights and arguments, and in the winter of 1871, Hall returned from a sledge practice run and was given a cup of hot coffee, as was the custom. He described this cup as being unusually sweet, and it gave him a burning sensation in his stomach, and soon after, he became pretty acutely ill. It started with an upset stomach, but progressed to vomiting and delirium within about a day. He became suspicious of his crew and refused medical treatment from Bessels. In fact, he only drank liquids delivered to him by his personal friend and aide. He began to improve until the ship's chaplain convinced Hall to see the doctor. And on November 4th, Bessels resumed his treatments and Hall's condition began to deteriorate again. He developed pain and weakness on his left side and then died four days later. After his death, the ship became trapped in sea ice. The remaining officers and scientists decided to continue the expedition and dispatched a small team in a whaleboat to make a push for the pole across the nearby open water they could see. Unfortunately, this whaleboat also became trapped and was later crushed only a few miles from Polaris. The team hiked back and requested another two boats, which were also trapped, crushed, and the teams had to return again. Polaris was now down four lifeboats three from failed excursions to the pole, and one from being left on the sea ice overnight as it began to break up. Nineteen members of the crew had also camped overnight on the ice, and later at one point awoke to find themselves stranded on an ice floe about eight to ten miles from the ship itself. These men remained stranded on the ice floe for about six months. They survived in igloos built by Inuit guides and ate food that was mostly caught from the sea. They drifted for about 1,800 miles and were eventually rescued. Now, when sea ice breaks up, it does not always leave clear open ocean, but rather fills the sea with large chunks we call icebergs. So it probably isn't surprising to most of you that when the crew remaining on the Polaris tried to maneuver the ship, they promptly ran into an iceberg and started taking on water. 
The crew frantically threw supplies overboard to help keep the ship afloat, and in the end decided to run the ship aground intentionally near Ita, Greenland. Unlike Franklin, this crew did enlist the help of local villagers to survive the winter, and in the spring, the crew built two smaller vessels from salvaged wood and sailed south into the more heavily trafficked waters. As they were rescued, the U.S. Navy opened an investigation into their Captain Hall's death. However, much of the evidence for this was mysteriously missing, including some cases where journal entries had been torn out surrounding the dates of Hall's illness. And Bessel's official diagnosis was apoplexy. It's a 19th century term for stroke. So, since there was not enough evidence, the official diagnosis held up and no official charges were pressed. However, in 1968, Hall's body was actually exhumed. It was buried in permafrost in Greenland, so it was well preserved. And on their examination, it was found to contain a surprisingly large quantity of arsenic, which apparently has an unusually sweet flavor. The pitfall in this expedition is crew selection. I'll admit that a crew murdering its captain is an extreme example, but the psychiatric and social aspects of crew interaction are one of the most critical issues for long-term expeditions. It's so critical, in fact, that NASA has an entire behavioral health and performance group right now looking into long-term psychiatric support for missions to Mars. Choosing the right mix of people has a huge influence on the success of an expedition. The right mix varies between missions, but it must be accounted for and is something that's worth considering on any expedition, especially long-term ones. I want to briefly cover two more expeditions, and the first one is a good example of what happens when you don't learn from the past mistakes. This one is George DeLong's expedition on the Jeannette. The Jeannette set sail from San Francisco in July of 1879, carrying a new electric lamp system that was designed by Thomas Edison to stave off the polar night. This device had never been tested, and the ship was not prepared in the same way as Parry's expedition had for being trapped in sea ice. However, two months later, the ship did become trapped in sea ice, and when winter approached and they set up their Edison arc lighting system, they discovered it didn't produce any light at all. However, the crew did find a use for it when their hull was breached in January by the pressure of sea ice, and the mechanisms were cannibalized to build a water pump to keep the ship afloat. Uh, this worked out pretty well, but it didn't solve the problem of the hull not being strong enough to withstand pressure, and eventually the ship's hull was completely crushed, leaving the crew of 33 stranded in uncharted territory about 560 kilometers from the Siberian coastline. The crew walked with dogs and sleds towards land, and eventually they ended up using whaleboats to traverse storm-ridden open ocean towards Siberia. Now, it says something when the sight of Siberia is what raises your hope of survival, but to make matters worse, this expedition's navigator, who had been known to suffer from mental and physical disabilities from syphilis before the journey, began to worsen and was unable to perform his duties as a navigator. This is another example of the need for detailed crew medical screening prior to missions. The crews did manage to stay together and island hop for several months, but eventually storms got the better of them and they were separated in three boats. One of these was lost and presumed to have been sunk at sea, but two of them did manage to make it to shore. One crew, run by an officer named Melville, was able to navigate up the Lena River and reached a small settlement where they were able to rest and recover from their journey and eventually be rescued. DeLong's boat, however, ran aground, and the crew had to wade ashore through frozen waters to land on a frozen wasteland with no signs of habitation. They only had three to four days of food, and they struggled south in search of more settlements, eventually dying from starvation and exposure. 
This expedition was ill-prepared despite examples of successful and unsuccessful expeditions that preceded it and had encountered many of the same challenges they faced. However, not all explorers ignored the past, and in fact, the Jeannette did provide valuable lessons for our next example, that of Norwegian explorer Friedrof Nansen. Nansen fielded the Fram expedition in 1893, and he wanted to reach the North Pole. So he started by studying the fate of all prior attempts, and since every one of them became trapped in sea ice, he decided he'd make that part of his plan. So he studied the drift patterns of earlier trapped ships, including the Jeannette, and he noticed that the Jeannette's wreckage was found about a thousand miles away and across the pole from where its last reported position was. He theorized that this meant a slow current existed in the ice that could carry a ship through the Arctic and possibly to within reach of the North Pole. If this current existed, all they'd have to do was navigate north of Siberia, get frozen in in a strong enough ship, and wait. If there was no current, the same strategy would eventually lead them to a thaw in the ice, and as long as they carried sufficient food and a strong enough ship, their biggest risk would be boredom and interpersonal conflict. So he designed a ship with a reinforced hull modeled off of William Parry's design, but he added a rounded bottom so that encroaching sea ice would push the ship hull up and out of the water rather than pinching it between ice flows. They also carried electric lamps that were tested prior to the mission and a wind power generator to power them instead of batteries. He also carried hunting equipment to ensure a supply of food and he sailed north to be trapped in the ice. As expected, they were trapped and boredom and interpersonal conflict were their biggest threats. In fact, Nansen wrote, quote, I feel I must break through this deadness, this inertia, and find some outlet for my energies. Can't something happen? Could not a hurricane come up and tear up this ice? End quote. Nansen maintained a robust exercise and science program, and he assigned tasks according to a schedule. He even did start a newspaper, as Parry had, but the crew had little interest in it, so the project was abandoned. Even with these interventions, fights did break out among the crew, and he found it very difficult to control them. To complicate matters, they calculated their rate of drift based on position and found that their current rate would take them over five years to reach the pole. This was not sustainable, so Nansen began to search for new strategies to both limit interpersonal tensions and speed their journey. But rather than rush off as the crew of the Franklin expedition had, Nansen used the next year of being trapped in the ice to modify his hunting sledges and train with dogs. He decided that if he put his men on skis, he could lighten the load on the sleds and make it easier to keep up with the dogs because they could travel faster over the sea ice. Aside from making any journeys easier and faster, it also seemed to be something the crew really enjoyed, and this became their primary pastime, which gave the men an outlet and exercise and got them outside of the ship, which reduced conflicts. With this in mind, Nansen began to plan a new strategy for getting to the pole, and he studied Inuit designs for ice survival to make the journey easier. He wanted to cross the ice towards the pole on sledges, but use kayaks as backup in case the ice broke and they encountered open water. The sledges would be pulled by dogs, but as they progressed and the sledges became lighter, he planned to kill the weakest dogs and use them for food. A lighter sled needs less pulling power, so killing dogs strategically saved food stores without changing their speed. Throughout the year, as they became more proficient, Nansen's crew ran several mini-expeditions to test out all of their gear and all of the clothing they intended to take. They would substitute or improve items as they needed, and modify their plans based on the mini-expedition's results. 
Nansen had attempted a similar journey several years earlier in which he and one travel partner planned a one-way crossing towards Franz Josef Land and decided that this would serve as the model for his polar attempt. He planned a two-man, 50-day journey, averaging about seven nautical miles a day, which is far less than the maximum that the dogs could travel, but he wanted to give them rest and build in room for error within his planning strategy. And he set off in early spring. However, their movements were even slower than he planned for, and on April 7th he observed, quote, a veritable chaos of ice blocks stretching as far as the horizon, end quote. And he decided not to attempt the pole and just to travel to Franz Joseph Land directly. I want to pause for a minute to talk about navigation. The navigation system these men were using is basically the same as we use today. There's east-west lines called latitude and north-south lines called longitude, and as long as you know your position on the grid, you can know where you are on the globe. To find your position on the grid, you just need a fixed point or a landmass reference, and you would be able to figure out where you are, a little like using a prominent city building to know which street you are on. The challenge is when you're in open ocean or you're in uncharted territory, you don't have land-based references. This means you need an alternative fixed point that you can use to fix your position in space. On Earth, the stars are an excellent reference point for determining one's latitude. They're far enough away and they don't move all that often and they can be seen at any time the night sky is clear. So as long as you know the time of year and what stars are visible at that time, it's possible to determine your latitude pretty accurately. This method was known even in Pythias' time. Now, his primary constellation guide was Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The word for bear in ancient Greek is Arctos, and just as the Tropic of Cancer is named for the zodiac constellation Cancer, the Arctic region still bears this name today. Longitude, however, is a bit more challenging. Since the Earth rotates, the stars cross the sky east-west every night, making it very difficult to use them as a fixed point. The race to find longitude is another one of these good exploration episodes, but for now, we'll say that the problem was solved with the development of an accurate clock. Because if you can keep track of a standard time, and then compare that time with the local time at your new destination, you can figure out how far away you are from your point of origin, and consequently your location east-west on a grid. Now, I mention all this because about a week after Nansen decided to abort his polar aspirations, his clock failed. Now, Nansen had brought a second chronometer to avoid exactly this kind of problem, but that one stopped working also. Apparently, the polar region and the cold up there is pretty hard on equipment. Without a functioning clock, they had no way of accurately determining their position, so they restarted their clocks based on a best guess that they were at longitude 86 east and had only a general idea of where they were after that. They did, however, have ample supplies, so they weren't in any immediate danger. Instead, they built a shelter, not wanting to fight the cold and dark of Arctic winter, and the following spring, they sailed in kayaks until they were attacked by a walrus and had to stop for repairs. I, I brush over the walrus attack, but I want you to imagine being in a hand-built kayak and then getting assaulted by a two-and-a-half-ton angry animal with two daggers in its mouth, and you'll understand why this is probably a pretty traumatic event. But in any case, while they were repairing their boats, Nansen thought he heard a dog barking which is an unusual sound to hear in the middle of an ice shelf. So he went to investigate and stumbled on the camp of British explorer Friedrich Jackson. This is how he came to travel back to Hammerfest and learned that the Fram had been sighted emerging from the ice pack in the northwest, which confirmed his theory of a slow Arctic current. Unfortunately, the ship didn't travel any further north than when he left it, 
But it did demonstrate that this current existed and became a pretty significant boon to the fledgling science of oceanography. Nansen succeeded in this because he planned for contingencies and didn't rush into making changes without careful experimentation. He learned from past expeditions, experimented with local survival techniques, and when unanticipated problems did arise, like the failed chronometers or interpersonal conflict, he set about trying to solve them before they got out of hand. This kind of flexibility and the willingness to tackle compounding problems before they start compounding is a common theme of successful expeditions. Today, Arctic exploration continues, but our methods have changed pretty dramatically. The risks remain the same, it's, it's still cold, it's still remote, and, but where ships dominated before, we now use airplanes, so time of travel is much different. Arctic crews are still isolated for extended periods in close quarters, but where temporary wooden huts or snow shelters stood, we've now built permanent stations with much larger internal volumes. And where crews used to be chosen from whoever was available on the docks, we've now learned to screen expeditioners both medically, psychiatrically, and academically before sending them to work for months at a time in field teams or at science stations. We've learned a great deal about how to support these expeditions and how to minimize the medical risks. Lessons about selection, entertainment, environmental conditions, food supplies, clothing, transport, and, and many other areas were learned, sometimes more than once, and we continue to learn from the Arctic environment about human health and well-being, ranging from individual psychology to the global health effects of climate change. In our next episode, I had the privilege to talk with Dr. Chris Davis from the University of Colorado about medical support for Summit Station, and that's one of our National Science Foundation's long-established bases north of the Arctic Circle. So we'll get to see what we're doing now that's different from what all of these guys had done in the past. After that, we're going to travel to the Antarctic, literally the opposite of the bear, Antarcticos, and meet some of the early southern explorers and then talk with some of the modern ones. So if you have any questions, comments about the show, or ideas for future episodes, please let me know on the show page at explorationmedicine.com or by email at podcast at explorationmedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Thank you for your support of this production. Please subscribe to the podcast and the website, and if you like what you hear, help us produce it by donating money or purchasing our merchandise. Thank you to Emily Stratton, our Director of Social Media Outreach, and to Jeremy Seeker, our Director of Communications. Intro and outro music is written and recorded by David Keough and available at ReverbNation.com slash David Keough. Special thanks to Fenella Kennedy for inspiring the idea and to our donors for making it possible. The Exploration Medicine Podcast is a production of Exploration Medicine. More information on each episode is available through our website at explorationmedicine.com, where you can also contact us with questions, thoughts, and ideas, or post to the discussion forums for each episode.